the single family home is by far the majority of our housing stock bar none. So it becomes an obvious question. How do you, in some sensible way, redevelop existing homes to house a changing society, a society made up less of the quote, you know, quote unquote, traditional family? Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Bernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio. This is your host, Mike Hancocks, and with me today is Bernice Miller-Travis. Last week, we spoke with Joel Mackauer and Puck Mickleby about their important new book, The New Grand Strategy. If you haven't listened to that episode, I highly recommend you go back and take a listen. One of the big ideas in their book is that we need to stimulate our economy by tapping into pent-up demand for walkable communities, regenerative agriculture, and resource productivity. Our guest today is directly addressing the challenge of creating more walkable communities and affordable housing through the creation of accessory dwelling units. But before Phineas and I get to our guest, we want to remind folks that we think the new grand strategy is such a great book. We here at Infinite Earth Radio are, are giving away 25 copies. So if you want to enter to win a totally free copy, we even pay the shipping, go to infiniteearthradio.com backslash strategy and enter to win. Or go to wherever you buy books and purchase a copy of this important book. Uh, either way, but get a copy. And we also want to remind folks that there's still time to submit a session proposal for the 2017 New Partners for Smart Growth Conference program. The deadline for session proposals is coming up on June 30th. The session selection process will take place from mid-July through the end of August. The Local Government Commission will notify those who have submitted sessions by mid-September as to whether their proposals have been accepted. Next year's New Partners for Smart Growth Conference will be held February 2nd through 4th, 2017 in St. Louis, Missouri at the Marriott St. Louis Grand Hotel. Visit newpartners.org for more details. Our guest today, as Mike said, is Rachel Guinness, the Executive Director of Lilypad Homes. Rachel has been in high-end residential design for over 20 years. She's a lead accredited designer and a general contractor. Rachel has a passion for small, efficient spaces and believes that home plays a critical role in financial and personal well-being. Rachel, welcome. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to join you today. I am very motivated by the work we're doing to... uh, create housing, infill housing, and creating just the exact communities that you were talking about. I am, I'm looking forward to getting my copy of that book. <laughs> uh, Rachel, let's, let's jump right in. What is an accessory dwelling unit? So an accessory dwelling unit is a, is a, a home on a property that's secondary to the main living space. It acts as a completely independent living unit, meaning that it has kitchen, living, sleeping, and sanitation facilities. So that's, in general, they run on average around 750 square feet, and most people require that the owner occupies the property. It can be the main dwelling, 
or it can be the accessory dwelling unit. Okay, so so now tell us about your journey. How did you become an advocate and champion of accessory dwelling units? <laughs> it's a it's a great question. Well, I love efficiency. I have I have an, a huge sustainability initiative, and my work has been as a residential designer and a general contractor uh, for many many years. I have advocated for um, sustainability issues at the local, state, and federal level. So I used to say I was helping to make the world pretty by day and helping to hopefully save the world at night. And uh, when the recession hit, it hit the remodeling industry very hard. It made me uh, recreate myself, if you will. And I said, well, certainly I can. uh, Let's see if I can get all my interests into my day job. And so creating housing and smaller homes and accessory dwelling units seemed like the perfect opportunity to build in sustainability, create resilient communities. And um, besides my professional background, my degree was actually in anthropology where I studied housing patterns. Combined with that was my own personal experience. When I became a single parent, I temporarily repurposed the master bedroom in my home. I created a lovely little living space and it was the income from that space that allowed me to hold on to my home on a designer salary and keep my daughter in her school just down the street from her dad's house. And so when I was recreating uh, myself, I, you know, I wanted to empower other people to hold on to their homes. I recognized the opportunity in the market and wanted to, well, I guess wanted to seize it and, you know, basically make my career going forward something that I believed in and could certainly um, put all my professional background towards. So I created, I actually started Lilypad Homes as a for-profit. And when I recognized all the difficulties associated with creating accessory dwelling units, all the financial and regulatory barriers in the way, I said, wow, I need to turn this into a nonprofit to create the regulatory environment necessary to facilitate this movement, if you will, because people more and more are turning to their homes as a resource and we have to make sure that that can be done in a very sensible, uh, reasonable, and affordable way. And so uh, I have been working hard on creating that regulatory environment around this one particular type of accessory dwelling in it. I consider it the, the lowest hanging fruit in the housing equation. And, um, and we can talk more about that. It's, uh, it's, getting, it's gaining popularity quickly. So let's talk about the benefits to individuals for creating accessory dwelling units. What are they, Rachel? Well, I would say it's one of the greatest investment opportunities going, um, especially in our most popular uh, communities, in our like communities that are already thriving, like you were saying earlier, that people are looking for affordable housing and walkable communities. And with an accessory dwelling unit, there was actually a Wall Street Journal article that was written that said that in-law apartments, accessory dwelling units are the hottest amenity going right now in real estate. And I can tell you from my anthropological background, I can, I recognize the fact, and many people do, that we are moving back towards a multi-generational housing model. In other words, families are more and more pooling their resources to maintain and even purchase homes. And so people are also more often looking to their home as a resource to create income because we are in the middle of a massive housing crisis. And yet we are the most overhoused uh, community, I think, in global history. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, and the United States has a very specific housing pattern. We are a young nation and most of our homes were created after World War II with the introduction of the GI Bill. And um, there were two very specific assumptions at that time. One was that there was endless cheap energy, which uh, no longer is the case, whether it was ever the case, obviously is questionable. And the other was that the nuclear family was the new model for the United States, where prior to that, multi-generational housing was the common housing pattern and is today the current major housing pattern around the globe. So we actually are moving back towards a multi-generational housing model as given the economic times, the increase in the, in the cost of housing and, and the like. So, Rachel, what, what, what would you say are the broader benefits to society? So this, this sort of moving back to that multi-generational housing form, is that a good thing? Is that more due to economic constraints that people can't afford to live on their own? Children are moving back, grown children are moving back, et cetera. Or is this a good thing in terms of what it says about family cohesion? I think it's an all around a uh, good thing. I think it's true that families are again coming together and we're creating more long-term vested communities. And I also think that we are living in a time of great diversity and resilient communities have diversity built in. I say that this type of model allows us to really create communities with I mean, if it all goes well, the people who serve our community, who participate in our community, whether that means family members or the people who actually work to make our community happen every day, can actually live in that community. And based on, from an environmental perspective, the idea that people can live close to their work is, I would say, vital for our very survival, if you will. But it also builds diverse resilient communities. So in all ways, I think it's a great movement and it takes advantage of the built environment that we have and the thriving communities that we have, bringing people in to like really create even greater vitality and security in those communities. So, th so this is, um, you know, this is a model that seems to make a tremendous amount of sense, right? We have a lot of communities that were built specifically around a car and certain lower levels of density that that kind of design suggests. And this is a way to make housing more affordable, to increase densities, to make communities more vibrant by having more people living, you know, in, in greater density, make them more walkable. So what's in the way of this happening? What, what are the obstacles? What, what's, what's stopping this a good idea from becoming a reality? Yeah, it's a great question, Mike. Um, so really the obstacles are, I would say, threefold. Uh, one is the regulatory environment. You have got to have a friendly regulatory environment for this to facilitate the development of this type of movement. So in housing, if it's going to be secure income, if it's going to be secure housing, and if you're going to be able to secure the financing to be able to do it, then you need to have a regulatory environment in place. Like we, it, it's not vacation rentals. I mean, this is like, you have to have a, a friendly regulatory environment to, to create this. Um, the other piece is, was actually in that statement, and that is financing. To create the financing opportunities around this, I can tell you Lilypad is involved in that conversation, and we are looking at creating the financial instruments necessary that will recognize the future value 
and the future income from an accessory dwelling unit so that people can get the financing they need for development. And I would say the third piece is fear. I would say people need to have their hand held through the process of doing a development project on their home to bring in a a neighbor, frankly. I mean, you know, there's two ways that you can go about this. You can have a roommate or you can have a neighbor. I prefer the word neighbor to tenant. (laughs) And um, so really creating a marketplace, if you will, so that people can find the people who they want to share their home with. And when I say share, I mean, we're talking about creating completely private accessory dwelling units, or in this case, junior accessory dwelling units, but it is an extension of the sharing economy. And so it's kind of the work that we're doing to create this one particular type of housing, junior accessory dwelling units, kind of graze the line between a roommate and a neighbor. And so really allows you in a way to handpick your neighbors. So when you, when you talk about a regulatory environment, I assume that you're primarily talking about local zoning. And I'm kind of wondering what's different about an accessory dwelling unit from, say, renting some rooms on Airbnb? Why is one allowed and one wouldn't be allowed? Or are they both not allowed? Well, allowed ultimately depends on the regulatory environment. So, um, you know, that's that's kind of the starting point. And we're doing basically what the Airbnbs of the world didn't do. We're creating a regulatory environment for a marketplace before like really facilitating that marketplace because for it, again, to be secure income and secure housing, there has to be a friendly regulatory environment for it. And that's and it's it's so important. Is there something beyond local zoning? Is there when you're talking regulatory environment? It comes down to local zoning, but in the case of junior accessory dwelling units, uh, we are having tremendous success putting uh, local zoning ordinances in place. It's just taking way too long um, because we have to get an ordinance passed by the jurisdiction, the municipality. So the work that we're doing is creating a very simple an inexpensive permitting track for repurposing spare bedrooms in homes to create a very simple form of housing. It's um, They act as completely independent units, but what sets them apart from other accessory dwelling units is that there's a flexibility to them built in. In other words, they remain connected to the main residence. So, so you have the opportunity to have a completely private separate unit that was made from a bedroom or bedrooms and ancillary spaces up to 500 square feet in your house that you can utilize if your needs require and for housing. So in the past, to create one of these units, you had to pay really high permitting and connection fees. And so we are getting those permitting and connection fees reduced and waived because junior second units, because they repurpose spare bedrooms, All of the water, energy, all the parking, all the road use, everything associated with bedrooms in your home have already been accounted for in the original permit. So to charge somebody, like this is what exists. So like a $9,000 connection fee for a sewer line. It's like, well, you've already paid for the sewer service for the bedrooms in your home. So you should have the right, if you will, to occupy the bedrooms in your house without having to go through a very difficult and costly permitting process that requires you to have a water and sewer connections, provide extra parking spaces, 
Again, all the water, sewer, parking, and everything associated with the bedrooms in your home have already been accounted for in the original permit. So to give you a specific example in Novato, one of the cities here in Marin, it was the first to pass the Junior Accessory Dwelling Unit Code. To create a regular, a traditional accessory dwelling unit there, it costs you somewhere in the neighborhood of $32,000 in permitting and connection fees. Now, because and and you have to create a parking space, let's just assume that you can create a legal parking space on your property. That's generally uh, very difficult, if not impossible to do. And that's a whole nother conversation. So those are the kinds of issues that LilyPad is working on, creating more creative solutions for parking for accessory dwelling units. Anyway, so now in Novato to create a junior accessory dwelling unit, it will cost you somewhere in the neighborhood of $814. No parking requirement, no sprinkler requirement. You're done. So 32,000 to 814. And that's fantastic and it all just it's all just kind of common sense. Yeah. My question though, I guess and not to belabor a point, but so basically all of these Airbnb setups are basically illegal. Because they're basically renting out and they don't have these approvals. They didn't go through this kind of approval process to be able to rent out these rooms separately. Or why would a local government allow somebody to rent out to Airbnb on a temporary basis, transient basis, and not allow people just to turn it into a regular accessory dwelling unit that people could rent year round? I would say that Airbnb is the opportunity people currently have to monetize the extra space that they have in their home. I would say that it's not illegal until somebody says it is. <laughs> and I certainly think that a case can be made for if people are going to repurpose what could be living space, you know, somebody's living space into a bed and breakfast business in the housing base. I would say that that deserves that people should look at that from a regulatory environment. I can tell you I'm in California. We literally have a shrinking housing base. People don't really think of it that way. But because people in California have the, I would call it the bad habit of buying second, third, fourth, and fifth homes, and then being California residents for two weeks, and then the rest of the time putting that home on the market for short-term vacation rentals, that not only do we not have the housing that we need to address people moving to California and the thriving economy that we have here, that we literally have a shrinking housing base. And because housing is so desperately needed, that the vacation rental market is driving the cost of housing currently. And you cannot take away people's abilities to survive unless you give them something to replace it. So that's where junior accessory dwelling units come in. By creating a regulatory environment so that people can actually create secure housing and secure income, then they have an alternative to doing what is the one way to monetize the extra space that you have in your home currently, which is Airbnb. So we are basically entering the marketplace with an accessible housing product that people can use to house loved ones, family members, caregivers, people who work in the community. And in doing that, creating more thriving, resilient, healthy communities. I do not think basically turning our housing stock over to the vacation rental industry and having those prices drive housing prices. It's a good idea. Certainly not from a systems approach. 
Yeah, we did a we did a great interview. I think it was in a previous episode with Dr. Chris Benner, who had looked at affordable housing, yeah. particularly in San Francisco, and and he really focused on employment changes versus housing market changes. And he looked at the fact that you know there were roughly six thousand over a five year period, six thousand new low income jobs created, but not one unit of affordable housing. Yeah, but but you're, what you're pointing out is to take that a step further. It's not just a matter of the fact that enough new affordable housing units haven't been created. It's the fact that housing units are being taken off of the market and utilized as Airbnb or, or temporary vacation. There's other services, not just Airbnb. Yeah. And so you're actually, your housing market is actually shrinking, which is another reason that the cost of housing is going through the roof. That Yes, it's a complicated problem. But I can tell you that what we're offering, and I always think that I'm in this value, the phrase affordable housing is a funny one for me because the work that we're doing is creating, I like to say affordable communities, because we're talking about creating affordability across all income levels. The work that we're doing creates more affordable rental housing while at the same time making owning a home more affordable. And it creates affordability across income levels. So because when in this environment, when I start talking to people about creating affordable housing, there's a very specific definition for that. And literally the work I'm doing doesn't qualify because I'm actually talking about affordability in its most, in its most general term. There is actually a definition for affordability. All of us are only supposed to be spending around 30% of our income for housing. Ha ha, right? <laughs> and, um, and so really... What we're looking at is a solution to really bring back some sense to the housing market. And again, from a historical perspective, we are in the middle of a massive housing crisis and we are incredibly overhoused. I'm, I'm just going to throw out some statistics that I personally find really interesting, but kind of speak to our point in California. I think you might have already said this, but I think it's 14 percent of the people currently living in California, whether they rent or they own, could afford their living situation if they are coming into the market today. We have over half the homes in California, and I would say that this is probably a statistic that works across the United States, over half the homes are occupied by only one or two people. In most cases, it's a couple sleeping in a single bedroom, leaving the majority of bedrooms, even in an average three-bedroom home, empty or underutilized. So that's kind of a wild statistic right there. And the majority, the traditional family, remember I said the majority of our homes after World War II were created for the traditional family, mom, dad, and even one kid under 18 years old, that the traditional family unit, if you will, makes up around 33% of the population in California currently. And so we are moving towards a demographic of smaller families, single parent families, couples without kids, empty nesters, retirees, young professionals of all ages and young professionals and individuals of all ages. So and yet the single family home is by far the majority of our housing stock bar none. So it becomes an obvious question. How do you, in some sensible way, redevelop existing homes to house a changing society, a society made up less of the quote, you know, quote unquote traditional family and more of the, of the groups that I just mentioned? This is fantastic, Rachel. So can you tell us how can people learn more about your work and how can they support your movement? Oh, thank you. Well, they can go to lilypadhomes.org. We are actually, we have a bill in the, uh, the assembly. It's AB 2406. It's working to create a state statute 
that makes the repurposing of spare bedrooms into these very simple living units easily and inexpensively permitted. And that's the California legislative bill, yes? Yes, that is, yes. And people can bring this into their state. People can come to LilyPad and we can provide them with the model ordinance. So even if you wanted to do it in your jurisdiction, if you live in Washington or Virginia or Utah or wherever, um, anybody can pass this ordinance at the municipal level. So, and we can provide them with that um, model ordinance. And what's that URL again? Could you just give that to folks one more time? Sure. It's lilypad, it's L-I-L-Y-P-A-D homes.org. So in other parts of the country, Rachel, if there are people who are listening to you now and they're getting inspired about the notion of accessory dwelling units, what could they do on an individual level, particularly if they live in a community where this kind of arrangement might be prohibited or where they don't know if it's even prohibited, but they want to explore this in their own homes? What would be their their first and next step? I would say to reach out to the planning department and find out what is allowed in your community. And then again, if they do not allow for the repurposing of spare bedrooms into this type of in-law apartment, then they should come to Lilypad, get the model ordinance and introduce it in their community. It is well known that we are moving back towards a multi-generational housing model. And you can see this in um, financial instruments like Fannie Mae has created a new mortgage platform. It's called Home Ready. And not only are they recognizing the income from an accessory dwelling unit, but they are recognizing income from somebody who might live in a home, but not necessarily be the signer on that mortgage. So it is understood that this is a movement that's going on as more and more families pool their resources to maintain and even purchase housing. Thank you for this great wealth of information. I'm sure that there are people whose heads are spinning out there now listening to you, Rachel, just breaking up in a whole new way of thinking about, you know, how do you manage for lesser resources, but better utilization of space, smarter communities. So our next round of questions we call the lightning round. And we have three questions and we want you to give us your shortest, most compact answer. The first thing that pops into your head, Mike. If you could implement one change or pick one leverage point that would lead to smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities, what would it be? I would pass a junior accessory dwelling unit ordinance in your community. I would facilitate the movement to create more inclusive housing. And what one action could our listeners take, Rachel, to help build a more equitable and sustainable future on an individual level? I would say easily somebody could introduce an ordinance in their community to make this housing possible. If you're successful in the work that you're doing, what do our communities look like 30 years from now? I would say that they're diverse, they're healthy, people have a sense of uh, well-being and security. I would say that certainly, hopefully more walkable. I think that it's an opportunity to really create resilient, vital, and healthy communities. So I'm enthusiastic about the future when it comes to housing. Thank you for being so generous with your time today. We really appreciate the work that you do, and thank you for spending time with us. And thank you all for listening. We will see you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, the Local Government Commission, 
Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infinite earth radio and Twitter by following at infinite earth radio.